appreciate you coming to this um, special event for our subscribers, sort of a way to give you some access to the newsmakers and uh, tell you that we appreciate very much your support of the Denver Post. I'm Leanne Colosiopo. I'm the editor of the Denver Post, and I have with me here uh, most of our political team, um, who you'll be meeting in a little while. But before we get to that, um, I'm going to do a quick introduction of the folks on the stage and then let Andy Kinney, who covers the city of Denver and life in the city of Denver, uh, begin, the, begin the debate. And he'll tell you how you all can participate by asking questions. Um, all right, so who do we have here? Mayor Michael Hancock. His background is he's mayor. He, um, <laughs> he, uh, he first won election to the Denver City Council in 2003, and then later um, was elected mayor, the position which he, of course, is seeking a third term. He grew up in North Denver, and today lives in Green Valley Ranch. Oh, they're in order, how easy for me. Uh, Jamie Gillis, um, hi. <laughs> Jamie is president and um, I'm not onto my bifocals, clearly. Uh, Jamie Gillis is president of Centro, a consulting firm that works with neighborhoods and districts within cities. Um, she comes from small town Iowa. I believe the former editor of the Des Moines Register is here, just so you know. Yeah. Um, also a place I worked. Um, and uh, she was previously um, president of the River North Art District, and today she lives in Platte Park. Then we have Lisa Calderon. And her fan club. Lisa is co-chair of the Colorado Latino Forum and a faculty member at Regis University. She previously was director of the Community Reentry Project, and she is from Northwest Denver and today lives in Cole. And down here on the end, last to the table, we have Penfield Tate. Penfield. <laughs> Penfield Tate was a Colorado State Representative and a Senator between 1997 and 2003. He's a public finance attorney, but stepped back from the firm for a second mayoral run. He lives in North Park Hill. All right, so there's your introductions, and Andy, there you go. Thank you, Leanne. Welcome, everybody. I'm Andy Kenny. I've been inside all of these people's homes now, with their permission. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm Denver Post City Hall reporter, which means I've spent most of 2019 talking to these folks and to candidates in 12 other races here in Denver. It's been quite a run already, and ballots drop in two weeks. The election day is May 7th, so we're really hitting the final stretch here. This is a time when we get to ask hard questions about Denver's future, about what's working and what's not. And so I'm very excited both to have all the candidates here, four of the six candidates, and to have all you here in the audience. Thank you very much for supporting the Denver Post and for participating in local politics. Let me review the rules. We've got four of the six mayoral candidates here. We did set a cutoff based on the number of contributions received. Uh, if you received a minimum of 200 individual contributions or if you raised $50,000, the candidate was invited. And that was part of an effort to cultivate a more focused conversation. They drew numbers just now to determine who will go first, and we will rotate the order with each question. Most responses will be limited to 90 seconds. We have a timekeeper, Jackson, who is an excellent and promising young journalist, but today we're making him hold the iPad. 
and uh, he'll just keep an eye on him, candidates, for your time. Uh, audience, if you somehow smuggled a sign in, please don't lift it up. No hooting, no hollering. Hold your applause, please, for the end of the forum. Uh, there is a cash bar with hors d'oeuvres, and I ask that you please, for the love of Lucifer, tip your bartenders. And uh, we'll all be hanging around, some of the candidates, hopefully, as well as most of our politics team. We look forward to talking to you afterward. So we've got 75 minutes and quite a lot of ground to cover. Uh, with the drawing of the numbers, Mayor Hancock is first to speak. Let me begin you with this question. The city of Denver is involved in a long and complicated effort to buy Park Hill Golf Club. That's a privately owned club that's kind of got a long history with the city in Northeast Denver. We've heard a lot of suggestions about how it might be used. And what I ask you is, what would you do with 155 acres of golf course land in Northeast Denver? Thanks, Andy. Let me thank the Denver Post and all of you, as well as our hosts here tonight. Thank you all very much. It's a real honor to be here and to, to really be a part of the, this very important conversation occurring in our city tonight uh, and throughout uh, the election season. You know, the reason why the city of Denver leaned in on this uh, Park Hill golf course issue is because we wanted to make sure we preserve open space. Um, the reality is, is that the owners, Clayton Foundation, uh, needed resources, and so they were gonna turn to the private sector. And we were very concerned about the fact that we would not have the ability to move in and preserve open space, and so we leaned in uh, to try to grab a hold of the park uh, the golf course is losing money as a golf course, is not operating well as a golf course, and we knew that. Uh, the first right of refusal was in place, however, and trying to not trump the uh, position and the rights of the, the leasee, uh, we needed to make sure that they exercised their first right of refusal, which they've decided to do. But our overall objective, number one, is to preserve a nice swath of open space in that area while making sure that the development aligns and speaks to what the desires and wants of the community may be. And so that's why we leaned in in the first place. I expect there's gonna be a lot of legal wrangling going on before this is all settled and done, but the city will always remain in place with this covenant and covenant deeds before we allow, before we release that position because we wanna preserve open space. Ms. Gillis, your priorities for that 155 acres? Thank you, Andy. And thank you for an opportunity to speak tonight. Recently, we found out that the city of Denver is 26 in the nation in terms of park space. We have dropped in the last few years from 17th in 2012, just after Mayor Hancock took office, um, to 10th place back in 2000. So I am committed to keeping that open space. Absolutely. It does not be, need to be turned over to development. Our uh, few, uh, mayors from the past made a commitment to purchase that land, to keep it committed open space, and the city needs to do everything it can to stick true to that commitment. I'm fearful that with two lawsuits in place and a lot of wrangling, that might not end up that way. So you need to be sure I think the people that care about that park need to be sure that you have a mayor in place who is gonna make a commitment to our green space, our parks, our tree canopy. I would love nothing more than to preserve that as an open area, recreational and accessible with a habitat that fits the climate of Denver. Places where people can play with their children and recreate use trail systems, and be outdoors. 
I'm committed to doing that, and I'm committed to expanding our park space throughout the city and changing the direction we are going as a city in terms of how we commit to our green and open space. Good evening, everyone. Lisa Calderon, and so glad to be with you. Um, I'm not sure what the mayor means by leaning in, but I know that a lot of those residents feel leaned on. I know because I've organized with them. City Park friends and neighbors have been fighting to keep that space and the easement that Denver voters have uh, purchased years ago. And so it seems to be part of a larger fight around preserving our open spaces. You know, it shouldn't depend on the zip code in which you live, whether you have access to green space. But increasingly in a city that's being overrun and overtaken by development, that we are forgetting what, make Den what made Denver beautiful in the first place, and that is our beautiful surroundings. I was also one of the organizers um, with Park Hill residents um, to protest the killing of the trees um, to create a massive ditch to protect developer interests along I-70. So my perspective is, is that I stand with the residents in preserving space uh, and with them in fighting uh, with the lawsuit against the city so that we can actually um, have spaces for our future generations. Thank you. I'm Penfield Tate. Uh, thank you for being here with us, and thank you to the Denver Post for hosting this forum. Let me offer this. I live in Park Hill. I represented Park Hill in the House. I represented Park Hill in the Senate, and I went to these initial meetings when we talked about what was going to happen to Park Hill Golf Course. It needs to stay open space. My preference is it needs to remain a golf course. What's more important in my mind is not what it's going to turn into or not turn into, it's process. Because what's happened too often in this city is you go to meetings like I attended and people show up and they say we want community input, but they really don't. Because what they're there is trying to get your buy off and approval on a plan that they've already preordained and established for your neighborhood. They're not looking for your input, they're looking for your acquiescence. And when you don't agree, they start skirting around you and doing things like cutting a deal to buy the golf course to build a mixed-use development and preserve pocket parts. Now, we have 155 acres of open space. Why do we need to trade that and pave over more of Denver for pocket parks when we have a rare amenity that we're losing all too frequently in this city through this administration. We need to keep it open space. We need to keep it a golf course if we can. Quick follow-up. Jamie, you mentioned some statistics, some rankings there. Can you clarify whether that was park space per capita or overall park space? Park space per capita. Thank you. And Mayor Hancock, can you comment on whether there is a plan for a mixed-use development there? I don't know about a mixed-use development. The city of Denver moved in to protect the value of open space. And we knew that there were people who wanted to get a hold of this land uh, in order to begin a development or some open space, uh, mixed use development. But we wanted to make sure that we heard what the residents of Park Hill said and that we preserve open space. I don't know what pocket park or where that may have come from. I've never heard that before. And so, you know, the reality is Denver has grown by 110,000 people. The reality is since I've been mayor, I have moved in to de designate and to protect 1,200 acres of park space. More park space than any mayor in the history of this city. Thank you, Mayor. I've also brought 650 new acres of park space to, uh, to the city of Denver. 
Thank you, Mayor. Uh, you will find index cards on your seat in which you can write down some uh, audience questions. Those will get passed up to me. I'll ask that we collect those around the third question. And uh, thank you for that. Our next question, modern development relies heavily on special taxing districts. And if you're not familiar, that basically means that property within certain smaller areas pays higher tax rates. And that money then goes to kind of pseudo-governmental organizations that use the money to pay for anything from roads, like Brighton Boulevard, the upgrade had some, some funding from the Rhino Art District, can pay for security, and it can also amount to a, a significantly higher tax bill for people that live there. Uh, starting with Ms. Gillis, what are the pros and the cons of this tax district model, and what would you do to keep it in check to respond to it as mayor? And you can take a few seconds to prepare. Thank you. I don't need to prepare. Um, <laughs> right up my right up my alley. Uh, so I've spent I've spent a career working on special district work um, that has taken me across the country and actually developed business improvement district legislation for the Singaporean government. Advised to the Labor Party on special district tools to be used for work in communities. But there's a very significant difference between the tools and how they're used. I've been an advocate of tools, the business improvement district tool and the general improvement district tool that Andy mentioned as community-led districts that communities decide how they work and function. They petition themselves to create the district, they vote on the district, and they govern the district. And there is a very tight relationship and a very tight accountability with City Hall on how those districts work. And they're largely happening in places where, like on Brighton Boulevard, the community created a district to uh, do a $3 million loan to leverage an investment from the city to make the street better, to add bioswales, to add trees and grass and bike lanes and all the great amenities that turn it from just a concrete street into a great place. Where we have to be careful is on metro districts. Metro districts that are used for development to pay for all the infrastructure really bind residents for the long term. So we have to be careful about the differences, but overall, I think they're tools that are worth looking at. Thank you, Ms. Gillis. Dr. Calderon. Yes, I believe there's absolutely a place for these districts. And um, when we get into more about affordable housing, they are part of uh, the formula for funding uh, affordable housing in the long term. The concern that I predominantly heard is around issues of equity and how uh, some districts have more um, say-so, buy-in, and wealth. Um, so I think the Broadway uh, development is a key one. Not everybody feels like that that has been accessible to them. Um, higher traffic, um, I heard it described also as the Platte River is essentially the alley behind the development. Um, and then when we look at other areas that have been ignored by gentrification, who don't have the same kind of boosters um, to help them uh, with, those, with that planning, they are feeling strongly left out. So while these um, development districts are wonderful on the one hand, I would like to see more equity in how uh, we, uh, you know, the financing and bringing people together and who is included at the table to uh, have their voices uh, about what do we want to see in the development of the area. Mr. Tate, how will you respond to the rise of special taxing districts? Sure. And this is what I do for a living, folks. I'm a public finance attorney, so I work with governments to borrow money to build infrastructure and have often worked with these districts. 
these districts can be a useful tool in generating funds other than your tax dollars, either property tax or sales tax dollars, to devote for development in a particular area to bring about what's hopefully a preferred result. The potential downside deals with management, control, and equity. You often see disagreements or fights within some of these districts because not every point of view and not every perspective is taken into consideration. It's often majority rule, but sometimes majority is counted by more than just your vote. It's driven by your interest. Secondly, the districts are not always flexible in terms of responding to current trends. They often aren't um, as professional or as comprehensive as some other districts, so sometimes they're behind the curve. And third, they do have funding problems on occasion. They do run out of money. They do um, find themselves in a situation where they need to retool and restructure because they haven't adequately funded for what it is they want to build. So there's a place for them, but they have to be tightly controlled and managed. Thank you. Mayor Hancock? When I was on city council, I helped create a couple of districts, a couple of med districts, uh, particularly a lot of large development that I had going on in the district, uh, particularly uh, Stapleton um, was one of them. And just south of us, Laurie was well on its way. One of the challenges we had, uh, you know, you've, you've heard from the other candidates regarding um, what they mean and what the role they can play. They're an extremely valuable tool in the economic stacking, economic development stacking, financing stacking for a community or for a particular purpose. Where you can run into challenges is what we saw in Stapleton. At times, it could make, uh, through an equity lens, a more challenging prospect for people who want to live in a neighborhood. Um, it came, you know, as an unintended consequence that it became a, a neighborhood that was unreachable for some people, too expensive. And then when you added on the uh, special or met district taxes or mill levies, it really became unaffordable for some folks. So you have to be really careful and have to understand the long-term plans and uh, consequences. And in neighborhoods that were brand new like Stapleton, you had multiple districts that were taking place. And so while we got great trunk infrastructure built in Stapleton, we're now continuing to fight the effort of bringing a more diverse community because of the cost of living in Stapleton. So important tool, but we have to understand the long-term strategies and vision for the community so that we don't get in the way of our own values as a city. Thank you, Mayor. And let me apologize. Uh, I did not set a time limit for responses earlier. Sorry for trying to shut you up, Mayor. Um, Let's say 30 seconds for responses, and that's going to be hard for you to adjust the timer on, so Jackson will just kind of signal you when you're coming up to 30 seconds on a follow-up. We've got one more tax-heavy question, and then we're going to lighten things up, relatively speaking. So Denver voters approved four different sales tax increases in 2018. They're paying for everything from uh, mental health services to housing, parks, and more. They collectively raised the city's sales tax rate from about 7.7% to about 8.3%. How will you respond to the trend of using regressive taxes to pay for these urgent urban needs? And let's start with uh, Dr. Calderon. 
I think Denver voters have shown time and time again that when they believe in the value that's added to our community, that they are willing to pay a little bit more. And so, you know, when we see that, whether it's the mental health issues, you know, for so many years and being a 20-year service provider who's worked in Denver's jails for eight years and was a legal director of uh, Boulder Safe House for abused women, um, knowing how important it is to have those mental health services. Um, but what we find over and over again is we just don't have them. Everybody agrees with the problem that we don't have enough mental health services, but then we are not funding that. So I think it was actually, um, hats off to Representative Leslie Harrod for pushing that through and even pushing through some of the city barriers that were in place when she was initially drafting that so that we could actually get a, uh, a comprehensive fund to tap into. Um, my concern though is that we also have it managed by um, experts and not the same people who kind of got us back into it. So my concern with that particular funding stream is that it's the um, pol politicians who are deciding who, how and uh, who gets selected for that committee rather than the experts that we need in that given um, in, in mental health area. Thank you, Dr. Calderon. You know, we're Denver and we help one another and we invest in one another because we want a better community. But one of the things that I've been learning and hearing as I've walked around this community during the campaign is people are saying, no more taxes. We've been hit enough, we've paid enough, you've gotta find another way to provide the core services we know we need, we expect you to make it work with the current budget constraints and the budget operation. You're right, the sales tax is regressive, and we go to it too frequently. We go to that too frequently and the marijuana tax too frequently. If you tax something too much, you're gonna lose some of it, and we're seeing now the black market trade increase in marijuana. But the sales tax hits people on the lower income scale greater than it does the rest of us. And those are the people who are living in a city where they're getting priced out of the city, where they can't afford rent, they can't afford to buy. They're not making enough on an hourly wage. It costs too much to get from one part of town to another. They're being stressed out and overtaxed and strapped, literally and figuratively. So if we're going to continue to provide services or expand services, we've got to work, and as mayor, I'll work than existing resources unless we talk about different revenue streams other than sales taxes because that's hitting the poorest among us far too hard. Mayor? Last summer I was walking through King Supers and had a uh, conversation with a couple by the name of Redwine. They are an older couple and they started talking to me about the cost of living in Denver and that they are making choices and decisions. And I said, you know, you sounds like me talking to my parents, my mother, because she is saying the same thing when it comes to her prescription medicines, when it comes to food for the month, that people are making very difficult decisions. And so when it came time for us to vote in November, and we had parks, we had mental health, we had uh, food uh, desert uh, on the ballot, um, you know, and scholarships, not one of those any of us would find ourselves against. They were right on target. They're important issues that we are working to address in the city of Denver, but need more resources. But I was very afraid that this regressive tool um, would end up hurting those who are on the margins, those who make tough decisions every month. We have to be very careful when it comes to utilizing sell taxes, and certainly property taxes as well.
We must always ask ourselves a question, as I do with my team when we sit and talk about increasing any kind of fees or taxes. Have we looked at every possible unit of revenue in the city of Denver that we can repurpose, and the people of Denver should expect that we have scrubbed the budget, we have scrubbed every pot of resource in the city of Denver before we turn back to the people and say, a new fee or a new tax. And uh, so the people of Denver are generous in November. And so we're where we are with regards to our sales tax rate, but that's the people of Denver. You brought up special districts before, Andy, and having worked on a lot of special districts, which is where people are voluntarily taxing themselves, one thing I can tell you is that I've never been part of a special district effort where there wasn't a plan in place before the, the tax was passed. And while I appreciate that Denver voters are very supportive of these initiatives that were passed in November, all of which are incredibly important, one of my concerns is that there wasn't a plan in place for how those parks dollars are truly going to be spent, for how the mental health dollars are going to be deployed. And so I'm fearful that those pots of money are going to become slush funds or free-for-alls for pet projects of an administration. That is my big fear. I also recognize that because these are such important issues, just as um, on Initiative 300, people who feel we need solutions on homelessness have put yet another initiative on the ballot. These are important issues that people want addressed. But why are we not starting with the fact that in Mayor Hancock's administration, we have seen our municipal budget go from 1.2 to 2.4 billion. Where are those funds being strategically deployed to address mental health, to have our park system thrive, to address homelessness? So that's where I want to start before I start pushing new taxes forward to address our ideas. Thank you. Can we collect some of those audience questions, please? And while we do that, I'll mention that the candidates were not provided questions ahead of time. When they asked, I told them to pretty much read the paper and see what folks were interested in. Uh, they did receive some general information that like taxes was going to be on there, uh, which is always a good thing to be ready to talk about. Can we <laughs> uh, you're going to have a chance to rebut that in a future question, Mayor. Uh, Let's take a step back from the question of taxes and all this nitty gritty stuff and give you something of an introductory question in the fourth question. Uh, why don't each of you tell me just a little bit about why you're running and what differentiates you from each of the other candidates? And Jackson, let's do this one in 60 seconds, please. And I believe that is Mr. Tate to begin with. I'm here asking for your vote. I'm running for mayor to lead Denver's future. As I've traveled around this city, people have been clear to me what the city needs to face the challenges we have now due to inaction and neglect over the last eight years is new leadership. They want leadership that is accessible. They want leadership that is ethical. They want leadership that is transparent. And they want leadership that is proven. They want someone with experience in government, in the private sector, 
leader who can step in and begin to address these issues right now. And we have issues. Development's out of control. There's no affordable housing left in the city. Our roads are a mess, and we've got a homeless situation and a problem the likes of which we've not had before. I've worked in the legislature. I've worked in the budget committee managing a multi-billion dollar budget for the state. I've run a Department of State government, and I worked for Mayor Pena. That's proven experience. That's proven leadership to work us through the problems we have now. Thank you. Mayor. Being mayor has been one of the greatest honors of my life outside of having children and being married to Mary Louise. I took this job at a time when we couldn't water parks, where we couldn't hire a police officer or a firefighter. I took this job when the city of Denver was almost double-digit unemployment. Our city employees were taking home 17% less than they uh, were, were told they would be paid. This city was in a lot of trouble. Double-digit unemployment, almost dipping below 10% in our savings account. I decided to run and, 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 and win, and we won. And we turned this city around. We should be proud of where we've come as a city. Today, we have the lowest unemployment rate in the nation, one of the most vibrant, desirable cities in the country. Our, we're the seventh safest city in the country as well, in the midst of unprecedented growth. I decided to run because I recognize that we still have challenges with regards to growth, housing, and mobility. And we are talking strategies and solutions already deployed, not plans. That's the difference you're going to hear today from me. Thank you. Ms. Gillis? It takes courage to run for office and to run a city. There's no doubt about that. And all of us up here have that. But when you are selecting a leader, it takes a lot more than that. It takes somebody who will lead, who will swim upstream if had to, if has to, make tough decisions, be compassionate, be collaborative, and be all about community. And we are not there right now in our leadership, in our city leadership, but we can be. I am a small town Iowa farm girl. I was born and raised in a town of 250 people to a working class family. My dad was a small town mayor, my mom a social worker. We learned ethics, we learned values, we learned your word is your bond, you do what you say. And I've carried that with me through my career, working in cities all over the world, working in neighborhoods all over Denver. I hear how stressed people are over all these issues we're going to talk about. We can fix it together. We can make this a more livable city, and I want to do that with you together. Thank you. Dr. Calderon. So I'm a lifelong Denver resident. I grew up here. In fact, I lived in the Westridge, uh, Westridge projects just over the hill over there. So I know what it's like firsthand to struggle and come up from poverty and also to face the barriers of racism and discrimination and sexism. Um, I am concerned about the future direction of our city. I know we can do better. I know we can create more opportunities for more people. Um, you know, I've been a longtime social justice organizer. I have four degrees, including a law degree and a doctorate, so I would be bringing a smart approach, evidence-based approach, not a career politician approach. It's time that we actually use what works um, rather than what is politically expedient or what developers tell us we need. So I want to make sure that we have a vibrant Denver, one that my children can grow up in, because if we don't change the trajectory today, many of us won't, will not be here in four years. Thank you. Okay, let's hold our applause till the end, please. Thank you, everyone. So um, for our fourth question, we're going to move away from some of the taxation questions. Mayor, you will have a chance later to talk about the city's budget. Um, 
Let me start. Yes, in my backyard, not in my backyard. Obviously, development is at the very heart of this election. How much influence, and this is going to be a 60 second, by the way, and sorry, Jackson. How much influence should a neighborhood have, the people who live in a specific area, over how development happens there? How do you balance the desires and wants of that specific neighborhood versus whatever other priorities you might have? And the starting candidate is Mayor Hancock. You know, having grown up in this city, I've watched our city change. I've watched our city grow. I wake up every morning with the heart and soul to move this city, advance it forward. There isn't a mayor in this country that does not want their city to be as desirable and as economically vibrant as Denver, Colorado is right now. The reality is, is that we also live in a city that holds true to its values of community engagement around development in its community. We have the most robust ordinance for neighborhood engagement in terms of our registered neighborhood organizations and notices. And whenever I was on the city council and a developer walked into my office to talk to me about the development they were gonna be doing in the community, I would always remind them that the most important thing to me as a councilman and to continue today as a mayor is whether or not the community has been consulted and is along with you. Doesn't have to be overwhelmingly support, but we want to know that the community's input has been sought and you listen to them and you work with them as part of your project. Thanks, Mayor. Ms. Gillis? I think the words doesn't have to be overwhelming support outlines how our neighborhoods are treated in the redevelopment process. Neighborhoods should be protected. We need to look at and make sure neighborhoods have the services and the amenities they need. If neighborhoods are going to absorb some density, we need to be able that we can move people, that we can move traffic, that we have transit access to them. There are tremendous places in this city that can still accommodate density, that don't tear apart the char character and fabric of our neighborhoods. River North was one of those places. The old industrial area around Brighton Boulevard was ripe for development because nobody got pushed out. We just repurposed old buildings. We need to actually lead as a city, put zoning in place that says density goes here, it doesn't go here, and we need to invest in all the things that have to support this density. We can't keep growing if we haven't invested in transit, worried about our environment, and dealt with all the other things that you need to support a community. I'm an over 30-year community organizer, and this city's brand of community engagement would uh, not pass many of our tests in how we organize in community. Uh, first of all, you start where the people are, and you ask them what process do they want. You don't push the plans out from City Hall. So I'm a proponent of resident-led development as opposed to politician-led development or the developer-led development. It's hard to trust that the same people who are funding mayoral campaigns are actually going to listen to the people first. Um, and so I would put the people first. Um, when we look at community engagement, it is really about, you know, what does each community need? And it doesn't mean it's a one-size-fits-all plan. So we have to listen to the people. We have to leverage city resources for the kind of future that they want, rather than uh, what we want from <coughs> City Hall. The neighborhoods ought to play a significant role because the city is about a, its people. 
We all know the problem we have with overdevelopment in this city right now is because the way this administration approaches community engagement is a deal gets cut in a back room, then the developers and all their consultants and their influencers flood a neighborhood and come and tell you what they're about to do and how it's going to be real good for you and you ought to grin and be happy because it's stuff you really need even though you didn't know about it until they came to sell you on the plan. We live in these neighborhoods and communities. We know when we need a grocery store. We know when we need some mobility and transit options. We know when we need a park. We know what we need, but development here doesn't start by listening to us in neighborhoods. It starts by somebody coming to tell you what they're about to give you and you better like it. In my administration, we're not gonna do that. I'll borrow from my boss and mentor, Federico Pena. Neighborhoods drive the process. Thank you, candidates. Let me flip that on its head a bit. Applause, please hold your applause. Thank you. Um, as much as we all love applause. Uh, let me flip this on its head. So there is a theory that Denver has a missing middle of housing, which is row homes, condos, townhouses, the kind of medium density housing units that uh, would basically allow more people to live here. I'm kind of parroting the Yimby philosophy here. So does Denver need to actively encourage that missing middle housing? And if so, should it happen in existing residential neighborhoods? And yes, Jamie, you're up. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Yes, we do need to actively encourage it. So 90% of the housing being built today is luxury housing for higher income individuals. Only 1% of the housing for sale today is under $300,000 per house or unit. That really defines the missing middle. We have to intervene to address that through both carrots and sticks, tools and policies at the city level. But, and we need density in certain places to do that. But density doesn't need to happen scattershot all over the place. Because if density just keeps popping up in neighborhoods and there's still no affordable way to move around and get around, get from your house to your job, or have access to good amenities, a grocery store or good schools, then you're really not being served. So you start by developing density along transit and affordable housing along transit like we did on 38th and Blake. You start by putting that density where it makes sense and making sure that there are services to move that density of people around. And know that over time, our neighborhoods can accommodate changes in growth, but they don't need to absorb all of that right now. Having great neighborhoods, strong, healthy neighborhoods, diverse neighborhoods makes the city great. And we want to protect some of that for the future of Denver. Yes, we need missing middle housing, but I want to put it in the context of needing the full spectrum of housing. Because in Denver, we have lost the ability to transition between our life stages. And so if you started off on public assistance like I did, and then you worked your way up from an apartment, and then um, going to a small house, and then a bigger house, that process can't necessarily be reversed. So essentially I'm stuck in a five bedroom Victorian sharing with 
five, uh, three uh, single women who are also working full-time who can't afford to live on their own in Denver. So if we're going to have uh, allow more transition between um, our changed circumstances, we need to look at the entire spectrum of housing. I also want to give a shout out to um, Kaylin Heffernan, who's also a mayoral candidate with Denver's Homeless Out Loud and Homeless Rights Advocate in her own right. Um, we share some of the same values is that we can't just focus on one population because if you start out on uh, homeless or on public assistance, you need then a step to go into, and that's also that missing middle. I also want to acknowledge that for people in the missing middle who are who don't qualify for low-income housing, um, who don't qualify for the luxury housing, we absolutely need to keep our teachers and our professional workers here because this city is engaged in a modern form of redlining by pushing out bodies uh, out to the outskirts of this city. Mr. Tate. We are going to grow and we're going to continue to have more density in our communities. But number one, we need to control what that density looks like. And number two, it's not the missing middle, it's probably the missing 70% based on what people can afford these days. So when I walk in neighborhoods, I talk to people and I met an elderly couple in Virginia Vale. One of the things they talked about is we want to downsize. We, you know, the kids are gone, we want to move. But what we found is we're sitting on a bunch of equity and when we sell and buy a smaller place, the smaller place takes all of our money, so we'll be house rich and cash poor again in a tinier place. Why would we move? Well, the answer is you don't. And that's part of the problem we have because we're not developing housing for that part of the community. Then I meet other folks who talk about, I've raised my kids, they're gone. I'd love to see my son and his kids, but they can't afford to live in the community where I've raised him for the last 45 years because he can't afford to buy or rent anything here. So we do need to incentivize this sort of <laughs> development. And my administration will work with affordable housing uh, developers both the carrot and the stick will provide incentives, will donate land, will bring cash to the table, will provide waivers, will provide variances, will look at amending the zoning code to accommodate this type of housing. But you've got to be intentional about it. It has to happen around the entire city because we're not going to build just attainable housing developments only in one part of the city. People deserve to be able to live throughout the city. Mayor. Just a couple realities. The missing middle, or workforce housing, is the greatest need we have. 60% of the housing that we need in this city is missing middle or workforce housing. We are doing a couple of things. We're working with home builders that are dedicating housing, are building housing specifically for our teachers and public servants, other public servants like our police officers, our hospital professionals who need housing. We need it throughout the city. And so we're also deploying uh, some of our housing fund money to purchase land all over the city of Denver uh, to land bank or land trust, a lot of the, uh, the, the land that we're going to buy so it remains covenant restricted for 60 years at minimum going forward. So today you're going to hear a lot of planning to do things. We are actually deploying these strategies right now, working to try to plug the middle, the missing middle housing. The other thing we're doing is convening with banks and housing finance organizations and working up pools of resources so that people who are working every day, 
working anywhere from 40 to 60 hours a week, can afford to live in the city that they want to call home. Density is important. Access to the transit corridor is extremely important. Those things are included in our plan. They're part of our COMP 2040 plan. And the reality is that we're deploying those resources right now, doing those things where we can, we can create land trust and we can also work with banks to make sure they're pulling money to help people get over the largest hurdle they have to buy a house, and that's the down payment. Okay, thank you. Jackson, will you please crank the timer down to 30 seconds for this next one? And the question is, which mayor previously, which previous mayor of Denver will you most emulate in office, if any? And uh, you, you cannot name yourself. <laughs> and this one is going to start with Dr. Calderon. Well, there have been no women mayors, so that's going to be tough uh, to emulate. I think it's time that we have that. Um, the other, though, I would say is Mayor uh, Pena, and because he was a civil rights attorney, and he came from the background of making sure that the people with the least voice were advocated for. He kept his roots with the community. Um, and so that's someone that I most admire. He also came up with the slogan, imagine a great city. Um, and so that's who I would emulate. Thank you. Mine would be a combination of two. Mayor Pena, who I talked about before. I don't before. know if that's allowed. Uh, my, well, I'm taking executive license. I don't know what it is. My, my, my prior boss, who taught us to lean in, who came into office because he was put there by the people who had been marginalized, disenfranchised, and not listened to by the power structure in Denver for before, and set us on a different path. The second mayor I'll emulate is Mayor Spear, who talked about the city beautiful. We need to focus on what the city looks like, how how it feels like and how it moves us emotionally. Mayor? I'm going to violate the rule as well. I'm a, I'm a compilation and a mixture of, of, of uh, Pena, Webb, and Hickenlooper, and, and really a commitment to the amenities and quality of life that Mayor Spear brought to us as well. And I've had a chance, of course, to live and to work with Pena. I was his intern. I watched him deal with the onslaught of gang violence in our city. I worked with Webb and helped build this city and really create the opportunities around the confluence and downtown residential living. And of course, working with Hickelooper was just a great joy. Mamas Gillis, which half dozen mayoral can mayors would you I'm like to I'm going to follow name? the rules. I'm going to follow the rules. Um, Mayor Pena. Sounds like we have some consistency on that. You know, Mayor Pena came in as a young guy, uh, not a lot of experience with city government, and broke the mold for Denver. And I think it's time to break the mold again. Um, so I look at him as a real leader. He got in there, he recognized the place where Denver was and the opportunity it had to be great, and he made some very tough decisions to get there. So I very much admire what he's done. Excellent. Let's take a break for audience questions now. Step away from my own, and Jackson, let's make these 60 seconds. Uh, we received a lot of them, more than we can have time for. All great questions. They will inform our coverage. We've picked just a couple to ask. Let me ask my very favorite. What are you going to do about potholes? <laughs> and let, let's try to make this into a, I don't know, two starting. <laughs> Mr. Tate. Number one, fill them. <laughs> um, number two, make sure we have a system in place where they don't get outrageous where you hit a pothole and you 
bend the axle, flatten your tire, bend the rim, and spend a whole day from work trying to repair it. And number three, listen to people. Have a system where citizens can call in and tell you what you need to do. But the, at the end of the day, we need to transition to other ways of moving people around this city. Our roads are a mess. They're too crowded. They're too congested. You know, it used to take me... 12 minutes to get from my house in Park Hill to the state capitol when I was serving. You can't make that drive in 12 minutes anymore. The traffic's too bad, and you're swerving, avoiding potholes. So we've got to invest more in street maintenance. We've got to rely on community to help tell us where we need to do street maintenance. And we need to stay on top of it because we have winter, we have weather, and these potholes appear at a moment's notice. I was walking North Park Hill. I can tell you guys this funny story. And the guy, I was getting the guy to sign my petition. And he started to sign, and he got all the way to the point where he was about to just date, and he looked at me and says, you know, Mayor, I have a pothole in front of my house. I said, all right, I got you. We'll, we'll, get it. we'll take a picture of it, and we'll make sure we get it to 311. And the reality is, is that Denver, we live in a city, of course, where we have an amazing freezing and thawing season between October and uh, April. And we, if you have a slightest crack, you're going to have expansion in that, uh, on that road. Um, the reality is we're going to fill 60 to 100,000 potholes between now and, and June. Uh, we're going to get them filled as quickly as possible is what we go through every season. But I want you to know about the fact that we have already uh, deployed a new paving strategy. We're going to repave this entire city. We committed $441 million part of the Elevate Denver Bond Program that you generously said yes to two years ago. And I drew the line and said half of this money will go toward transportation and mobility infrastructure. So in paving those roads should help us with some of these potholes that occur every season. Potholes, the universal topic. Wow. I'm going to have a little fun with this. When I was the head of the River North Art District, we saw this idea, came up with this idea that we would have artists go fill the potholes with mosaic art. It was a great way to bring a little color to the neighborhood and solve a problem at the same time. Um, but, but honestly speaking, obviously it is a big issue for people. Um, it's good to hear that the city streets are going to be repaved. Just a couple comments on that. One, let's make sure we're doing it well. We have a system to keep on top of it, and we're doing efficiently. We, um, in the past, have done all of our asphalt work and repaving work from within the city. A lot of that work has been contracted out. Are there cost savings there? It's definitely something worth looking at to make sure we can stay on top of it, not have to wait every 10 years for the go bond. But the other piece of that is to provide options and alternatives, get people out of their cars, onto connected bike lanes that are protected, onto the transit network that we're gonna build, and, and safely crossing sidewalks and uh, using our pedestrian system as well. Well, obviously we want to fix them, but we also want to uh, not just prioritize the ones uh, uh, that we're familiar with, because I think that there's supposed to be a three-day turnaround, and it's for some people it's much longer. I know just coming here to this forum and going under the viaduct of Washington, those potholes have been there for quite some time. Um, so it's not just the damage that can be done to cars. I know there's also frustration when people uh, whose cars have been damaged and they have not been 
uh, been responsive, um, had their concerns be responded to in a timely manner um, by the city. So I'd want to improve uh, the customer service aspect as well. But I also want to talk about the safety issue. It isn't just for drivers. When we have people with limited mobility and we have streets being closed because of permitting uh, by developers, there's not a lack of compliance to make sure that our walkways and our um, streetways are passable, that's another issue as well. So it's, it's, it's potholes and it's also bigger than potholes. While we're on transportation, let's move to transit. You've all talked about the desire to encourage transit use by building up infrastructure in one way or another. Would you consider actively discouraging automobile use? In other words, is it all carrot or is there some stick in there too to get some cars off our roads or is that the wrong philosophy? And the person to start this question is Mayor Hancock. That's what I've been talking about for the last uh, five or six years with my mobility action plan that I wrote out and committed $2 billion worth of resources. Spent a lot of time working at the state and in the federal levels trying to bring additional resources to Denver so we can build out and expand our transit network as well as our bicycle network. You see us committed to 125 lanes of bike, bike uh, mile lanes of bike lanes uh, in the next five years. As we're rolling them out, we're trying to expedite them as quickly as possible, as well as completing and repairing and improving our sidewalk network. So absolutely, yes, we've been talking about getting from behind your steering wheel. The reality is we gotta stop. It's not just about congestion. It's also about our health. And when I talk about health, as I learned from the public works director in London, when you talk about health, now everybody in the room understands what you're talking about. Everybody in the room sees themselves in that conversation. This is a health imperative that we start leveraging multimodal options around our city. Ms. Gillis, will you discourage automobile use? Great question. Um, I think my microphone's Thank you. Uh, you know, that's a little, um, it's, you have to build the transit and provide the options before you can start discouraging use. So the mayor just brought up London. The mayor of London just passed the most comprehensive um, and expensive congestion pricing system in the world. And they are focused on doing that for health, air quality, and climate change. And I think that's incredible. I've seen it all over the world in my travels and work. But we're not there yet. We have to build the transit network. And Denver is a city that was built on a streetcar network. I'd love to start there, reintroduce a network that actually connects our neighborhoods, makes it feasible to use the regional rail system, because once we get off the regional system, we can connect into our neighborhoods. But we have to create a network that works for people, gets them where they want to go, and is, does so affordably before we can encourage them to get out of their cars. Uh, let me just pause to say that Ms. Gillis mentioned congestion pricing. That's the concept that uh, you almost have to pay to enter certain zones with your automobile and it's contingent on the amount of traffic and it's supposed to discourage you from driving. Uh, Dr. Calderon. Um, so having worked uh, with changing people's behavior, we know that incentives work a lot better than disincentives, but there's a place for each. 
Um, so when we look at incentives, we're looking at, um, yes, we want to make it easier for you to come into the city center, because um, right now it's such a hassle when you are in your car. Um, we also need to encourage people, I mean, so it's one thing to say we want to um, have less focus on car transit, but if you don't provide regular, affordable, and accessible transportation, that is not very encouraging. Um, and right now, I would be, uh, I don't see our city leadership really standing up to RTD to make sure that we have a system that is affordable and reliable. And I actually rode public transportation for the first 21 years of my life um, with children and with groceries. And so I know how important it is to have that. Um, so we need about $5 billion for our roads and about $2 billion for our sidewalks. And we need a comprehensive transit plan for that. I would not actively discourage vehicular traffic right now because we don't have a transit network that lets you get anywhere reliably in terms of consistent um, means of transit and within a reasonable period of time. When I first moved back to Colorado from law school, I commuted by bus to work every day because I lived on a bus line. I could get downtown and back on one bus, no transfer. I could catch it and get there 15 minutes before starting time and get home and catch a bus 15 minutes after. Can't do that anymore in Denver. Where I live now in Park Hill, I can't take light rail. By the time I drive to the station, I'm almost downtown, so I drive downtown. I can't catch a bus, but I've got to transfer two or three times if the buses run on time. We need a Department of Transportation that will focus on new trans transit modalities. We need to look at shuttle buses within communities, between communities. We need to look at expanding the bike lane system and having it make more sense. But you can't disincentivize something if you have no option. Very good. And we're going to move now to one of my favorite topics, paying for things. And obviously, uh, so each of you, as we talked about transit just now, I believe each of you has supported the idea of Denver, for example, taking on more responsibility for transportation, even forming a Department of Transportation uh, in order to supplement RTD's services. So in the spirit of that, I'm going to ask each one of the candidates about some of their most expensive sounding plans. And if you have one that's more expensive than the one I named, you're absolutely welcome to, to substitute that one in. And we're going to talk about how you're going to pay for it. Um, and I'm sorry, but Ms. Gillis, you are the first to go. You've talked about a streetcar network and a billion dollars, I believe, for housing, if I'm not correct. Uh, how will you pay for that? OK. Um, so start, let's start with the streetcar network. Transportation is going to be the most complicated thing we have to figure out how to fund. And without a doubt, it's going to take a layered approach with uh, lots of resources. Um, we've talked about creating a, a transit department within the city, potentially looking at how you can do things such as um, capture parking revenue to reinvest into transit as a starting point. I love the idea of taking money from one mode, um, a vehicular mode, to reinvest in actual transit. Other cities like Portland have used the special district model along, along streetcar lines to uh, get property owners and investors along those streets who will see increased economic benefit to invest in that. We also may have to look at different things. Should we put a fee on Uber and Lyft like some cities have, or vehicle registrations? It's going to be layers for the transit. On the housing, you know, we have gotten, we have a $300 million commitment to housing over the next 10 years currently. And I have talked about a billion dollars invested in affordable housing. But I don't think all that money has to come from the city. 
It needs to come from collaborations and coalitions with our regional partners. 95% um, of our housing, affordable housing right now, is built by nonprofit partners. There are a lot of for-profit developers that want to build good affordable projects, and we can leverage resources by building coalitions and building it together. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Calderon, you've talked about, as well, a better supported affordable housing fund, uh, power grid upgrades, public transit upgrades. If there's any more that you want to add, you can as well. But uh, what, what is your plan to find funding for these major initiatives? Okay, for transit, as I had mentioned, we need about $5 billion for roads and $2 billion for um, walkways and sidewalks, et cetera. Um, so we also have to augment the declining gas tax with new sources of revenue. Um, so if we do look at uh, like congestion pricing or um, road fees for mileage traveled uh, and also for the disincentives for uh, traveling when there's high ozone, uh, ozone alerts, I remember when we had the brown cloud and I also remember being discouraged when we were driving when we have the brown cloud. Um, so those uh, can be additional funding streams. When it comes to housing, you know, it's interesting to hear um, from the mayor about uh, that they're doing and not planning. Yet we have a lot of uh, funds that are not being spent. Uh, I, what I would want to do is pull together all of those funding streams that are dedicated for housing into one comprehensive housing fund. And that's the marijuana tax, the impact fees, um, the already dedicated property taxes, uh, and leverage those with other funding with foundations, um, Denver Housing Authority, um, so that we're not having a fragmented approach to housing, which is what the city's doing currently. Um, so we are leveraging instead of competing with each other, and then affordable housing builders can tap into that fund. We've seen it done in other cities where they've passed... Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, bond fees, $248 million in, in uh, Portland, for example, we can do that in Denver. Uh, Mr. Tate, you've talked about your plans as well, including one to solve homelessness within, or not to solve homelessness, but to, well, it might have been to solve homelessness in 100 days. Um, I said to address it. We'll, we'll solve it, but we won't get it done in 100 days. We'll address it, though. Thank you. And, and any other major plans, uh, how will you fund them? Sure. Um, with homeless, when I've met with the homeless providers around this city, they said the biggest problem they have is the city, the administration, is not a, an engaged or active partner. They're too focused on criminalizing people who are homeless, in most instances, through no fault of their own, rather than providing some support or assistance. We just got sued and settled a class action lawsuit by the homeless because instead of helping them, we're sweeping them and we're criminalizing them for being in parks. Solution. So what do we do? We work with the existing providers who are willing to step up and partner with the city. When I have met with them, the last thing they asked for was money right now. They said, why don't you accelerate the permitting and approval of temporary shelter space? We can expand. We can accommodate more people. It's just we've got five different agencies that come in and review us, and we can't get them here at the same time, and it takes too long. Why don't you accelerate the permitting and approval of permanent shelter space? Why don't you help us identify other shelter space where we partner with you and either rent or buy some additional space? And we believe that the homeless would even be willing to live in outdoor encampments if they're structured, if they're safe, if they're secure, and if they're surrounded by amenities like restrooms, laundry facilities, and shower facilities, and they'll help pay for it because they're paying for it now. 
Uh, Mayor Hancock, you also have a number of priorities, including, including potentially billions to build out some of the transit ideas mentioned in Denverite. Uh, where will you find money to address Denver's biggest issues? Yeah, we, we talk about $2 billion commitment with transit. Didn't make that commitment lightheartedly. Didn't make it without a strategy going forward. We made our first down payment on, as part of our Elevate Denver Bond Program, $441 million toward that initiative. We also raised what we are commitments. Someone asked where the money go from $1.2 to $2.2 billion. Well, we started investing and pushing and, and, and organizing around how we manage the growth, including uh, investing in our transportation mobility and infrastructure uh, in the city of Denver. So we increased the general fund allocation around mobility infrastructure in the city of Denver, as well as making sure we're increasing our funds around uh, affordable housing, which is not a municipal function. It's the first time. My administration was the first in the city's history to allocate general fund money for affordable housing. And so we're off running. So the billion dollar, $2 billion commitment includes, yes, federal and state resources, and I made it clear the moment we announced that we have a marker for you, and we are lobbying and working on both levels to bring the money home. In the meantime, we're pulling from our general fund uh, and our Elevate Denver Bond program to fund our programs up front with regards to mobility infrastructure. For our 10th question, if you're familiar with Denver history, you know what the inverted L is. It's the neighborhoods in Denver that have historically had lower incomes, worse health outcomes, and fewer public resources dedicated to them. They run right here along Federal Boulevard behind us and along the north side as well. This is gonna be a 90 second question. Please tell me how that pattern formed historically and what you will do to break it. And the first person to speak will be Dr. Calderon. So as I mentioned, I lived in those uh, areas, and they formed quite simply from our history of redlining. So it was a history that um, where black and brown people could not live in certain parts of the city, and as a result, um, are still catching up. So we are living with the legacy of redlining. What we have today is really um, a modern form of redlining, as I had mentioned before, where you have the poorest folks, the workers who are being pushed to the outskirts of the city. You are preserving the city core for the wealthiest who have an average income of about $120,000 a year. That means with so many resources being focused on downtown, a lot of these other areas that have suffered under redlining um, were, you know, are still being neglected. The other piece is that gentrification is not inevitable, unlike what this mayor has told us. Uh, market forces are shaped by governmental policies and uh, working with corporate development and private interests. So if we are going to uh, essentially um, put some uh, interventions to prevent the worst byproducts of gentrification, we have to understand which stages of gentrification uh, are, we're in in different parts of the city and, uh, and therefore put in anti-displacement, anti-poverty programming in those areas. This situation that we have is a function of 
our history, the legacy of racism in this community. And it's not just been on the west side. As many of you know, it happened in Park Hill and other parts of Denver also. We talk about Brown versus Board of Education, but we forget about Keys versus School District 1, which was Denver's own desegregation case for its schools, which was why we had busing. So we have this legacy we have to overcome. You overcome it by being intentional and also recognizing where you are. I, I mean, we talk about what some people talk about what a vibrant economy we have, but we have to understand this. Under this administration, we are now the most displaced city in terms of the Latino population of any city in the country. We are gentrifying and driving Latinos out of this city at a rate higher than any other city. We're also the fifth most fled city now. Millennials come here, can't afford to stay, and leave at a higher rate than they do in any other city except DC, New York, Seattle, and San Francisco. We need to manage growth and direct it. And if we want to bring up neighborhoods, because the reality is Denver will only be as great as its poorest neighborhood. We have to be intentional about telling developers and working with communities and putting investment in the neighborhoods where it doesn't exist now. We don't need to have food deserts in this city. Mayor, tell us about the past and the future of the inverted L. The inverted L. I grew up in the inverted L. And the reality is that in order to address it appropriately, it must be data-driven. When I became mayor, I hired a demographer who would help me to better understand what are the indicators that create the L, the inverted L. And we came up with 11 indicators. It became known as our child well-being index. Those 11 indicators and things include things like childhood obesity, education indicators, unemployment rates, economic development, um, uh, average incomes in the area. And from that, we were able to determine where our most vulnerable children live. You tell me where the most vulnerable children live, and I'll tell you where the most vulnerable residents live. That has driven our investments. Many people will ask me, well, why are you investing in Sun Valley, arguably once identified as the poorest neighborhood in Denver? Why are you investing in Westwood? That's not because those are the people who want you to come and invest. Those are the people who need it. Those are the people where we got to begin to change the indicators that tell us this is where our most vulnerable children live. Let me give you an example. In Westwood, there was a liquor store that came up for relicensing in the city. And instead of moving and allowing for and, and relicensing that liquor store, because we had the indicators, we moved in with uh, Volunteers of America and we turned it into a child care center, a daycare because of missing uh, seats for child care in that neighborhood. Folks, the decisions we make, these are strategies and solutions today, being deployed today to protect our most vulnerable residents, and we're doing it in this administration. Well, the mayor talks about current data-driven, uh, and um, we also hear from Dr. Calderon about anti-displacement strategies without understanding what those are. I want to tell you about an exhibit called Undesign the Red Line that's going around the city's libraries right now. You can spend an hour there and you can learn the entire history of redlining in Denver. You can see where redlining documents, planning documents done by the city of Denver in 1938 that concentrated poverty align directly today to areas um, of poverty, to areas that still have, don't have access to healthy food, access to transit, have environmental issues. The data is our past. And we have to do right by it. 
And that means looking at those neighborhoods, acknowledging that in the last property valuation cycle, while downtown only saw property values increase and taxes increase 10%, all the neighborhoods in the inverted L saw 35% plus. People that are already struggling are now struggling to pay their taxes. So we have to get in there on a neighborhood level. We need property tax relief, and we can do that through things like extension of the homestead tax exemption, expansion of it. We need to make sure those places have access to transit lines, that they have good schools, that they have access to fresh food, that we address and remediate environmental issues. That's how you solve those problems, by tackling it head on. Thank you. Jackson, 60 seconds, please. The philosophy of harm reduction, with which many of you are probably familiar, says that we can essentially help people out of dangerous situations by decriminalizing their behavior. And in reality, that might look like, say, getting rid of the camping ban, which would, as advocates against it argue, allow people to sleep in better lit areas, or supervised drug injection sites arguably would reduce overdose deaths because they're done under supervision. Uh, please respond to this argument, and this will begin with Mr. Tate. Both of those are good examples. With respect to the homeless, um, I've already laid out for you the plan we have because sweeps and camping bans don't work. And I would offer, we don't want a bunch of people sleeping in parks around the city. We need to help lift them out of the homelessness, particularly since about 60% of the homeless work full time or have some employment. Many of them, what has driven them to homelessness is not because they want to sleep on the sidewalk or in a park. They can't afford to buy or rent in this community. We can address that. That's part of the harm reduction. In terms of the safe injection sites, you know, as mayor, I'll rely on one of the best public health systems we have in the country, Denver Health, to tell us if that is something that is actually viable, feasible, and something we ought to do. It's not going to happen now because the, the legislature won't approve the legislation to let it move forward, but that's what I would do in terms of um, the safe injection site. Let me tell you what harm reduction looks like. It includes $50 million invested to address homelessness, which also includes uh, resources to address mental health and drug and alcohol addiction. It's the 24-7 uh, on-demand service in partnership with Denver Health. It includes an innovative program through our social impact bond effort called SIB, where we built housing for, at the time, 275 chronically homeless. Today is 325. We were able to increase it. They live in those facilities and it's a permanent supportive housing wrapped with intensive support services. Harm reduction. It's about hiring 24, 24 social workers to ride in the second seat of a police car, beginning to break the cycle of, 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 of needlessly arresting people who have a mental health or a, a drug and alcohol addiction impairment that might be causing their challenges. Harm reduction means moving to action and having a diversity of approaches to reduce the harm. I'm, I believe that it's a city's job to take care of everybody, um, to get people to home, homes, to get people to services. And so in philosophy, I support harm reduction, but I don't support Band-Aid solutions that are one-off. I believe that if we truly believe that it's our job to take care of people comprehensively, then we do it comprehensively. When the safe injection site 
was uh, passed by city council and under consideration by the legislature. I was the only one here that opposed it. And I opposed it not because I don't think potentially at some point it's, it's, it's part of a solution to something, but because if we really believe that we want to actively get engaged in addressing the heroin and opioid epidemic, we have to look at what we're doing to meet people where they are. We do have to look at data in this case. We have to work with healthcare partners, and we have to be able to address that um, comprehensively. As the only mayoral candidate up here who's been our direct service provider for over 20 years, I worked a lot on issues of harm reduction. And harm reduction means um, essentially a spectrum of things, including um, having affordable housing. Because when you have a place to live and you are not criminalized and you are stabilized and we have a housing first model without preconditions, without requiring that you come into that facility first sober or that you don't bring your partner or your pets or your belongings, that is part of a harm reduction model. It means that we are stabilizing people where they are at. This city has not done that. I know that running the city's reentry program of having people come out and not having those options and opportunities. And I also want to correct one thing. Um, I didn't have to go to an exhibit to understand about redlining. My family lived that. Yeah. Well, we are coming up on time. And I would like to have my editor, Cindy, up here. Say what she's going to say. Thank you all so much for coming and, and being, um, you know, to the audience first off for being such an engaged uh, and intensive audience. The questions that we got really were tremendous. I read every single one of them and, and as Andy said, you're going to see those questions reflected in our reporting here in the next few weeks. Also like to thank the candidates all very much for showing up and engaging in a lively but Civilized debate. Um, and then lastly, we have uh, the cash bar. We have some hors d'oeuvres on both the left and the right side of the room. And uh, we have several staff members who are going to be uh, mingling. Uh, Leanne, who's waving at, gesticulating. I know. <laughs> um, the editor of the paper and myself, I'm sorry, I'm Cindy Andrews. I'm the politics editor. Uh, Andy's going to be staying around. Anna Staver, our politics, one of our state house reporters. Nick Garcia, our other state house reporter. Justin Wingerter, our new federal reporter, who's also helping at the state house as needed. Megan Schrader is joining us from the opinion section. And, oh, Bill Reynolds from Circulation. Uh, so we've got lots of, of Denver folks. Denver Post folks uh, that we'd love to chat with you all and uh, enjoy a bite and a drink. And the surveys on your, that were on your chairs when you took your seat, if you're, uh, if you're so inclined to fill them out, you can leave them on your seat completed and we'll pick them up later. Thank you again very much for coming. <laughs>